Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, you can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 13, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, Putting Your Sin to Death. All right, kids, you guys can go ahead back to your Bible study time. And if you're staying in here, please join me in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We're going to read verses 12 and 13 for our time of study this morning. Romans 8, 12 and 13. And while we're transitioning and you're turning and things there... Pastor Ben mentioned that we're starting our Saturday evening service this this coming Saturday, October the 10th. Um, You know, when we began as a church 15 years ago this year uh, and started with six people, I can vividly remember one particular morning when one of those six people wasn't there. And so there were five of us in a room. I preached to four people that morning uh, as we were getting started. I had a conversation with somebody who asked me, Like, what's your goal? Uh, How many people do you want to have? And so I kind of said, well, that's not exactly how, you know, I measure success. You know, success is not how many butts you can get to have come in seats. It's other things. It's faithfulness. But the guy said, okay, yeah, all right, I get that. But surely in your mind, there's some number that if you get to, you will count it to be fruitful. I said, oh, you know, that's fair. So I said, you know, if we ever grew to... All right, in light of where we are, in light of the fact that we're in a town that in its history has never had a gospel preaching church remain, that there had been attempts but had never been able to endure, for crying out loud, in light of the fact that we have a member of our church that got detention as a kid for playing with a Protestant girl on the playground, that there have been times that Protestants were run out of town just simply because of hatred that they got from their neighbors and such. In light of that kind of stuff, I said, you know, if we ever reach 40 people, 40 people, a a viable group of 40 disciples that were walking with Christ and would endure for generations, I would rejoice in that. So us needing to begin a second service this week is a big deal. It is a big deal. It's still not how we measure success. We measure success based on faithfulness to the word of God. Disciples who are willing to trust Christ, if this is as big as we ever get, we will more than rejoice in what he has done. We do not measure success based on just the number of people we can get to come in a room. Never forget that some of the prophets preached their hearts out and no one responded. But Jeremiah did what Jeremiah was called to do but we also rejoice to get to be used when there is fruit that comes. So we'll rejoice in that and we want to be used and we want to keep thinking like missionaries. The calling that Christ has told us is not try to go to a certain place and then when it gets comfortable, then just stop right there. It's multiply, 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 reach the ends of the earth with the gospel. That's our attempts and that drives decisions that we make. Let's turn to the text, Romans chapter 8. Beginning in verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. 
But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Let's pray. Our Father, we specifically come to you and ask for this grace that you will empower and enable us to worship as we study your word. Father, we pray that you will send your spirit to work all of those things. Some of them we understand, a bunch of them I'm sure we don't and can't comprehend all that has to happen for this divine work to take place, for us to be transformed by your word. So Father, we pray, do it. God, I want to pray that every soul in this room will be positively affected by your word. Father, we know your purposes are also being accomplished at times when your word causes a hardening of hearts. We submit to you in that. We pray your will be done, but we long, oh God, that as souls hear your word, that lost folks who are among us will be brought to life. That the new birth would take place in, in this time from this text, oh God, that you would awaken that conversion to faith would occur in, in this time. So please bring that. And for your sons and daughters, Father, we pray that your word will have its sanctifying effect, oh God. Convict us, challenge us, strengthen us, build us up, encourage us. Whatever needs to happen in us for us to be transformed, to move forward in our walk, for us to put our sins to death, please, God, bring it about in this time. Father, please protect the time we're going to spend together, O oh God. Please give grace, O oh Lord, that you will work and, Father, that you'll use me to teach. I also pray for our little ones, um, our children going back into the room to study your word and memorize scripture and, and, and all of this. Father, please, we pray that there would be some little ones saved today. Father, we pray that there would be some little children come to Christ. So please bring it. Father, please work for your glory. Bring us to worship you first and foremost because you're worthy of it. But we also pray, oh God, that you will work in us for the building up, oh God. We love you. It's for your glory we pray it, and it's in the name of your son that we pray it. Amen. Israel being redeemed out of slavery... And then the many and varied ways that God works in them, among them, through them, is meant by God to be a type. That's the, that's the biblical word, a picture, a shadow, a metaphor, a figurative illustration of God redeeming souls out of slavery to sin and death in the New Covenant. So the New Testament teaches this principle. We talk about it a fair amount. That over and over again in the Old Testament, God intentionally worked circumstances so as to be a type, a shadow, a picture of the work of Christ, who he is, what he's accomplished, and what he's doing in his people. So Israel was redeemed as we have been eternally redeemed in Christ. God entered into a covenant with Israel as God has entered into an eternal covenant with us. God brought Israel into the wilderness for a time of testing. Just as we live in a 
wilderness-like world of testing before we come to the banks of the Jordan. There's a, there's a figure and a metaphor there. God bringing Israel to the banks of the Jordan to look across into the promised land and to trust him by faith that he will bring them into his good promises just as God in the scripture brings us to look across the river of death into the promised land of what he's telling us is coming in the kingdom of heaven. There's just dozens upon dozens of these connections, these types, these metaphors that God intentionally worked. And another one of these connections has to do with God's command to Israel to go into the land and drive out and or destroy the nations that were in the land of Canaan. God told his people that they were to be thorough, that they were to go into the land and they were to drive out, push out, and if they would not leave, make war against the inhabitants of the land. And God said, as an act of judgment, I am bringing judgment against these nations. You are to drive them out. God said it would take time. It would be a process. It would be grueling. He would be with them as they worked, but they, he were commanded to go do this. God said that if you don't obey me in this, if you leave residents in the land, they will become thorns in your sides. They will eventually seduce you. They will eventually lure you away from devotion to me and you and your children will fall away from me and it will be devastating to you. So rid the land. There was one particular moment when King Saul was told to drive out the Amalekites specifically. The Amalekites had been particularly wicked and God gave Saul these instructions through the prophet Samuel. So Saul gathered the armies, they went out to war, they met the Amalekites in battle and they had victory. And Saul destroyed most of the Amalekites, most of them. The prophet Samuel shows up to the battlegrounds after the fight is over and Saul walks up to him with a big smile on his face and his arms out wide and he says something like, the will of the Lord has been done. I did what you said. And the prophet replies, then what is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? See, part of what God had commanded Saul to do is actually not only to destroy all of the Amalekites and drive them out, this was one of the times that God commanded a complete destruction. He said, you're not even to keep their livestock. I am giving a complete judgment on this group for their wickedness. You even wipe out the livestock. Well, Saul looks out at these fields full of money, value, and he reasons with himself, oh, surely this wouldn't be a good idea. We'll keep some and we'll make offerings to the Lord from the best of the livestock that is there. And so Samuel replied to Saul like this, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. When God gives a command, he expects thorough obedience. He does not expect us to just do most of it and then make peace with some of those parts that, he's, that we're not following through on. He expects full and thorough, absolute obedience. 
And there is in all of that a picture for us in this new covenant, just like there are pictures in other ways that God worked in the people. There's a picture and a principle for us, not of invading lands and driving out and making war with people, but of the battle of the Christian to rid the land of the body of sin. The battle of the justified Christian to make our behavior and our lifestyle to match what we have been made in Christ, which is holy. We've been counted as righteous legally, and the instruction we've been seeing over and over again is that we are to now make our behavior and our lifestyle match what we have been made in our position in Christ. The good news of the gospel What Christ has done will only be understood if you first understand the bad news that your sins have separated you from God. You are not right with him based on who you are from birth and if you think you are a good person. Our sins have brought a situation where we deserve punishment from him. The storyline of all of the scripture of what God is doing in history is that he sent his son to be a sacrifice to pay the justice price for all who will turn to him. But you need to know that you must be saved. You must be made right with God through his son. And the way that we're made right with him is not by go be good. It's not by works. It is turn to Christ in faith trust in him. It is a heart turning to him. It is not go be good and then you'll be right with God. It is come to Christ. You will be made right with God. And now we enter a work where God is at work in us and we are in the business of being transformed and working to put our sin to death. A major way that we do this, a major way that we live this Christian life is by seeking out and destroying every part of our lives that is still in rebellion to him. Turning to Christ for salvation is a holistic way that we bow our will and bow ourselves to him to say, I'm yours now, God. I'm not warring against you any longer. I'm yours. But the reality is there are still corners, shadows, and little parts of our lives and sometimes big areas of our lives that are not yet in submission. And the battle of sanctification is seeking out what are the areas of my life that are still in rebellion to him and bringing each one of those parts to bow the knee to him, to rid the body of sin. God comes to us in scripture and says, rid your body of sin, drive it out, destroy it, Do not make peace with it, just as God commanded the Israelites not to make treaties with the people. Friendship with those nations would be hostility towards God. Listen, Christian, friendship with our sin is hostility towards God. The message of scripture is kill it. it. It's violent language. That's the language here. Verse 13, put to death. The King James, if you have that sitting on your laps this morning, uses this word mortify. Now, we still use that word mortify in modern English, but we do not use it generally in the way that it actually means, what its actual definition is. 
The most common usage when you hear somebody say that word mortified might be something like, I was literally mortified. And steam should come out of our ears as we say, no, you weren't. You may have been figuratively mortified, but you were not literally mortified. When you dropped your lunch tray, okay, you didn't die, right? You were embarrassed despise these ways that it's happened. The language here is death. The word mortify is this verb form of death, thanatao, from the word death, thanatos. Some of you Avenger fans just perked up, okay? You hearing this? All right, you may not have known this. The reason why the bad guy in those movies, I watched him because my daughter made me, okay? The reason why the bad guy in those movies is named Thanos, okay, is from this Greek word death and what is used here in verse 13 is the verb form of death put to death that's the language here so every time you watch those movies you can think put my sin to death this what this was the language that is here mortify the deeds of the body this is going to be our subject for some number of weeks, though, though there are some interruptions that are coming. We're gonna be taking the Lord's Supper here soon. Pastor Ben's gonna be preaching, but uh, as far as Romans 8 goes, for a number of weeks, we're gonna be in verse 13 on this subject, considering this. We've seen numerous ways that the Spirit of God is supernaturally at work in us who are in Christ. Remember, that's the running theme in Romans 8. The Spirit has been given to God's people and He is doing something. And we've noted a number of works that he's doing. Thus far, we've seen he changes the course of our life. He enables us to please God. He indwells us. He gives us life. And the fifth work... Point number five in this overall outline of verses one through 30, he empowers us to put sin to death. So that's what we're gonna be considering. The spirit empowers us to put our sin to death. Or to say this in another way, the spirit empowers us for victory over the flesh. Or again, another way, the spirit is working in us to help us put our sin to death. In other words, Christian, we are commanded to do this. We are commanded to do this, but it is the spirit who is helping us. So it is not that we're just cruising through life, doing whatever, living however, and then we, the spirit is just doing it for us while we don't sweat. But it's also not the case that we're grunting and sweating and working while the Holy Spirit simply watches. It's, it's part of this big mystery of God is at work and yet he is at work in and through people. It's, it's, it's tremendous mystery. But this is a mystery that's shown to us all through the Bible. Look, even going back to the book of Genesis, all the way back to the book of Genesis, we see this mystery. God is at work in people and they're sweating and working and fighting. And yet he is accomplishing his purposes. And, you know, you go back to Genesis and there's no part that says the spirit is helping him put his sin to death. But now that we know this kind of thing, we can go back to Genesis and be like, oh, that's what he's doing there. That's what he's doing in Abraham. That's what he's doing with Joseph. God is at work in his people, helping us put our sin 
to death. It's a mystery shown to us all throughout scripture. So we're going to work through these two verses. What we're going to do in this message, in this study, is work through the phrases in these two verses, make sure we understand them. And then next week, Saturday and Sunday, we're going to spend the entirety of the of the time on the subject of destroying our sin. How do we go about doing this? How do we get practical? So there are six truths in these phrases that I want to point out to you. I've got them labeled A through F. So if you're taking notes, you can keep track of them there. Let's get started with letter A. Letter A is we are under no obligation to the flesh. Now, two Sundays ago, we studied verse 12 and we looked at that phrase, we are under obligation. And we spent the whole time meditating on the fact, what are our obligations, our duties unto God? What is our responsibility that we owe God? We are debtors. We are under obligation to him. The counterpart to that truth is that we are not under obligation to the flesh. We are not in debt to the flesh. We have zero obligation to the sinful desires of the flesh. Now that can seem like just a really obvious statement. Let me, let me tell you kind of one of the aha moments I've had in preaching and teaching. Sometimes in the, in the text, we'll see something that is just so blatantly obvious that the thought is like, well, I don't even need to say that because it is just <laughs> obvious. But an aha moment that needs to come in preaching and teaching is usually when there's something that is just really, really obvious, once you go down into the, the doorway to start studying, there's deeper stuff there than we ever knew was there. And there's also the reality we're all learning truth at different times. And even as mature believers, there can be sometimes some foundational things that we've missed along the way. So we got to say it. Okay. We got to say even the obvious stuff and go deeper. So let's say the obvious thing here. Christian, you have absolutely no obligation to your sinfulness to indulge the desires of your flesh. But see, we will have times. We will have times when the flesh is screaming out, feed me. We will have times where there is some desire. It's in our minds. It's a thought in our hearts. It's, it's I ought to have this, or, or maybe even I deserve this, or I ought to receive this, or some raging desire of the body, some lust of the flesh that is crying out for indulgence. You may have some sinful sexual desire that cries out something along the lines of making you feel like, but I need this. And that's when we got to be ready with the word of God to tell the flesh to shut it. No, you don't need this. My obligation is to God. One of the repeated lines of the newest sexual revolution is, you must not suppress your sexuality. Have you heard this? You know, don't be a prude. Don't be Victorian. It's dangerous to suppress yourself. 
And there's a, there's a lot of error in that last phrase that I just said. It's dangerous to suppress yourself as if who you are is defined by sexual desires. But we hear this language around us. What they're preaching is when you have these desires, that's who you are. You need to act on it. The irony of that is that the flesh condemns itself by suppressing the truth of God and then imagining that indulging these desires, which only makes things worse, will actually bring freedom, will actually bring health will actually help you become the real you. That's, that's language. You gotta, you gotta find and, and realize the real you. The reality is that kind of thing enslaves. Obeying desires, sinful desires only enslaves. It promises freedom. Sin is the biggest liar that, is, that exists. It promises these images of ultimate joy and fulfillment. You ever lay in bed and think about that possession that you want? And you imagine, then I'll be totally fulfilled and happy. If I could just get the bigger house that I've always wanted, then I can be happy. It lies. It promises freedom. Or another example Kind of like the idea that sometimes folks have when hateful words, when bitterness is boiling up inside of us, there's sometimes that idea, you know, if I just get it off my chest, then I'll feel better. Now, listen, there's a legitimate way that sometimes we got to talk things out. And some, so that expression, I need to get it off my chest, that can be a legitimate thing to talk some things out. I'm talking about bitterness, hatred. It's boiling up inside of us. And I just need to, I just need to say it. I just need to tell him off. I just need to get it off my chest and then I'll feel better as if feeling better is what is godly, is what is healthy, and what is good. Well, if you tell somebody off, you might feel better. Indulging the flesh, scratching the itch can have many ways that it feels good. But it dishonors God and eventually leads to misery. It always enslaves, because here's the reality. Every time we give into a desire, here's what happens next time the desire comes. The desire is stronger. Feeding desires results in further slavery. Feeding desires means next time the desire is hotter and stronger. And when we feed desires, it's treating our flesh like we owe it. And we do not. So when the, when the body screams, feed me, indulge me, you owe me, Jesus says, die to yourself. Die to yourself. Take up your cross daily. Deny yourself and come follow me. Listen, this command that we have here in verse 13 to put the deeds of the body to death, really, it is just an extension of what Jesus said when he called us, take up your cross daily, deny yourself and come follow me. That call to die to self, die daily, deny self is the call to die to these desires of the flesh, these sinful desires that rage inside of us. What we are dying to are these sinful lust. We do not owe it. Letter B. Notice the verse 12 says, we are not under obligation to the flesh 
to live according to the flesh. So who or what are we under obligation to? All right, well, we know the generic answer is God. And we spent one entire Sunday looking at that. But I want to show you something deeper there. Because what the Bible does here is, is we're, we're taken further in some specifics here. Because think about what is said in verse 12, and then what we might expect verse 13 to say. So verse 12 says, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. So what would be we expect verse 13 to say as the counterpart to that? We might expect it to say, we are under obligation to the spirit, to live according to the spirit. So not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, but to the spirit, to live according to the spirit. But that's not exactly how verse 13 is worded. But what I wanna to submit to you is, that is what it is teaching, but what it is doing is getting very specific about how we live according to the spirit. So that is the message of verse 13. If we were to come to Paul, get to have a conversation. You ever want to do that? I got about 100 questions I'd like to ask him. If you got to have a conversation with Paul and ask him, Paul, what does it mean to live by the Spirit, to live according to the Spirit? He would probably answer something along the lines of, well, it means a lot of things. I, I wrote about serving your church family in the Spirit in Romans chapter 12. I wrote about worshiping in the spirit, praying in the spirit. It's either first or second Thessalonians there. Uh, he might say, my buddy Luke wrote about gospel ministry done by the power of the spirit in the book of Acts. So it means many things. But one of the chief things that it means is to put your sin to death. In fact, I am inclined to say that I think it would be the, the number one on the list. What does it mean to live according to the Spirit? It means by the Spirit we are putting to death these deeds of the body, these sins that are there. So understand, Christian, this is not everything that it means to live by the Spirit and live according to the Spirit. There is also service. There is also worship. But there is this that is necessary to put our deeds to death by the Spirit. Letter C. Verse 13, summarize it. Living according to the flesh equals death. So here's how it's worded. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. Now, we got to talk about the, the confusion that could come here. Passages like this can be quoted out of context by somebody who believes works-based salvation to try to give a, an aha kind of thing here. Because it could say, if you took it totally out of context and didn't read everything else around it, even in chapter 8, and then all of the book of Romans, somebody could say this. Well, it sounds like he's saying that if a Christian sins too much, then that Christian is going to go to hell. That's not the truth here. This truth is consistent with the whole Bible, the book of Romans, and even what we're seeing here in chapter 8. There is a message that's being shown here in chapter 8. What we've been seeing all through Romans is that the soul that is 
justified has these 20 or more miraculous works that happen inside of us. When a soul turns to Christ by faith and is justified, we are we indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We are uh, made as new creatures. We are united to Christ. We are legally dead to sin, etc., etc., etc. All these things that we've been listing. We're empowered to good works. And what have we been seeing this very chapter teach? Even if all you did was study this chapter, you would come to the same conclusions. It's teaching that the man, the woman that has the spirit of God will live differently because the condition produces the lifestyle. It's not that the lifestyle of do good deeds will make you filled with the spirit and make you a child of God. That's not what's being taught here. What's being taught here is the condition of being a child of God, of receiving the spirit produces this change of lifestyle. So if a man is living according to the flesh, what's the conclusion? The conclusion is not, well, this man must have lost his salvation. No, that's not what we're being shown here. The conclusion is, this is an unjustified man because he does not have the spirit. He must not have received the new birth. Living according to the flesh is a marker. It's an indicator of a person who does not have the spirit and therefore is not saved. Little Ruby uh, likes to watch hunting shows with me sometimes. It's pretty cute. And sometimes we're watching these hunters go after these animals that she's never seen before, like a moose. And so you can imagine this little conversation that takes place. She'll see it and she goes, what's that? Is that a deer? And I'll be like, no, it's in the deer family, but that's a moose. And then in total toddler fashion, you know the question that comes next. What's a moose? Okay. Well, the smart aleck in me wants to go, well, it's what you're just looking at. It's what you just asked there. But I know what she means. I know what she means. What she means is... What's the difference between a moose and the deer that I'm thinking of? I'm starting to teach her what a whitetail is. So what's the difference between a moose and a whitetail? And so I'll explain to her. Well, a, a moose is much bigger than a whitetail. The bulls have those giant antlers that you see there. The tail looks different. It makes a different sound. What am I doing? I'm explaining to her the indicators, the characteristics of a moose versus the characteristics of a whitetail. That's what this phrase is doing. What we're being shown here is, here are the characteristics of the unjustified man versus here are the characteristics of the justified man who is in Christ and has the spirit of God. Here are the markers. I cannot see the DNA of a moose. I recognize it by these other kinds of characteristics. You and I cannot look into anybody's heart and see what God sees and see whether or not the spirit of God lives there. So what do we see? We see the indicators. We see the characteristics. How do I know if I am justified, if I have the spirit of God? Look for the indicators. 
It is not that I just make it up by whatever reasons I say that I'm saved. The Bible gives indicators, characteristics. Here is what a justified man looks like. Here is what a unconverted man looks like. That's what we're being shown here. And so look at this. If you are living according to the flesh, death, death. If you are living according to the flesh, it's not that you're losing your salvation. If you are living according to the flesh, what it is an indicator of is that you do not have the spirit of God. You have never been converted. Those with the spirit of God will put sin to death. So here's the counterpart to that letter D. Putting sin to death by the spirit is indicative of life. Verse 13, if, you see that? If, if you write in your Bible, like if you have a Bible that you do some writing in, taking notes in, I encourage you to circle the word if and to do it repeatedly throughout the New Testament where you see it. We call this the conditional if. And this is terminology that you need to know, Christian, because there's big theology here. The big theology is over and over in the New Testament, we're shown these kinds of things. The book of Hebrews has it a bunch. The book of Colossians has it several times. What it shows is if, we cling to Christ, we have eternal life. Again, it is not that this good work makes you saved or gets you heaven. No, no, no. It is the condition, the justified Christian. Here's a marker. They're going to be putting sins to death. So this conditional if is extremely important. It can be misunderstood. I'm just telling you some parts of the Bible, God just chooses not to make it easy. It's got, it has to have years worth of thinking on. This is one of them. It's a complex issue. It leads to a lot of confusion, but this is the reality. By the way, to show that indicator kind of thing again, because we've already seen this verse. You're in chapter eight. Look at verse 14 again. I think this is made crystal clear right here. 814, for all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. God, how do I know who are the sons and daughters of God? They're the ones being led by the Spirit. It's an indicator. That's what's being shown here. So, your condition leads to your lifestyle. It is not that being led by the Spirit makes you a child of God. Being a child of God, receiving as a gift, the gift of the indwelling Spirit, will lead to being led by the Spirit. They're the ones being led by the Spirit. Letter E. We kill sin, but we do so by the Spirit. When you're reading the Bible, we've mentioned before that there is a great need to read large portions. There's a benefit that comes when you read five, 10 chapters at a time, getting big picture kinds of things. But there is also a need to slow down. There's a need to read thoroughly, maybe to read one passage five times in a roll to try to see everything that is there so that we don't miss those oh so critical little phrases. There are little phrases in the Bible that mean big things and this is one of them. In verse 13, where it says, by the Spirit. Those are some big words. Big truth. 
It's the kind of thing we can miss when we're going quickly. By the Spirit. What we're being shown here is that we are to be putting these deeds of the body to death, yet we are only able to do so because there is another person living inside of us and he is aiding us in this work. His involvement is so certain, so guaranteed that the Bible will say, everyone who has the spirit will have this come about in their life. Everyone who has the spirit of God will put sin to death. It's not some of the time, it's not most of the time, it is every time. You have the spirit, you will put sin to death. Now, Christians will all put varying amounts of sin to death. Some Christians who Paul talks about, some who sow sparingly will also reap sparingly. Those who sow much will reap much. That's speaking of the reward to come. It is possible to live a lazy kind of spiritual life and do very little of this kind of work. And if that it happens, we will regret it on the day of judgment. But every person with the spirit will put sin to death. Let's keep thinking on this. Let me ask a question of the text as we continue to try to think through what we're being shown here. We're told to put our sin to death by the Spirit. So does that mean that there is a way to put deeds of the body to death, not by the Spirit, but by the flesh? So is there a way to deal with sin, but it's not by the Spirit, it's by the flesh? Well, I, I think the answer to that is yes. I mean, at least if we're thinking outwardly, okay? So yeah, to fully kill a sin, it's only possible by the work of the Spirit. But when it comes to actions, habits, deeds, outward things, I, I think the answer is yes. Humans are unable to change the nature of who we are by ourselves. We've, we've quoted Jeremiah throughout the book of Romans, as the leopard cannot change its spots. You cannot change the nature of who you are. That is a divine work of God. And that's what the new birth is. And this continual renewal that the Holy Spirit is doing, that's what he is doing. Divine work, divine help that is taking place. But humans can put away actions. We can suppress deeds, patterns, bad habits, even addictions can be suppressed by the flesh. All right, so consider a man, let's think of a man who was lazy, habitually lazy. Can you think of any reasons why a man might conquer his laziness, but those reasons are not of God, they're of the flesh, they're ungodly. Sure, a man might want to conquer his laziness because he develops a love for money. And in his greed, I want, I want more. I want to be able to buy all the possessions that I want. So he conquers his laziness, but it's for the purpose of serving money. Can we think of any methods that a lazy man might use in order to conquer his laziness? But those methods are not of the spirit. They're of the flesh. Sure, it's a thing that happens that there are those who use illegal drugs to energize the body so I can work real hard and real fast and make a whole bunch of money. But the point is serving 
money. That would be putting away some fleshly deeds of the body, but for a reason and in a way and by a power that is not of the spirit, but of the flesh. We could go through all kinds of examples of those kinds of things. Humans can work to control their tongue, but for ungodly reasons. Humans can fight gluttony, but for reasons that are not godly. We could go through a whole list of these things. So the answer is yes. All the time, humans are dealing with deeds of the body, but in ways that are not killing sin by the spirit. In order to honor God, which is the whole point, in order to honor God and to actually put sin to death and not just alter, not just tweak actions, but to put sin to death, it has to be done by the Spirit. It has to be done by the Spirit. We're not just trying to grow in self-control. Now, let me make this clear. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. It is one of the methods that is good and godly. But even the world that doesn't have the spirit can understand I need to develop self-control to do some things. The Christian is about more than just self-control, you know, turning actions. We are striving to grow in the whole of who we are. All the way from the root outward, thoughts, motives, desires, actions, words, lifestyles, every part of who we are is to be offered unto God as a sacrifice. We're striving to make that holy. We're going to come back to those, by the way, in future weeks, thoughts, motives, desires, actions, words, lifestyle, the whole of who we are all the way down to the root. We want it all to please God. So the point is to put sin to death by the spirit. It must be done for a reason that is by the spirit. It must be done in a way or a method that is by the spirit. And it must be done by the power of the spirit. So I just named three things there. There might be more. <laughs> this is one of those. There's no passage of the Bible that lists off and says, here are all the things that it means to be by the spirit. Okay. So this is my finite mind. I'm thinking, okay, I can, I can think back to Genesis four and what Hebrew says about that, about motives. I can think of Colossians talking about the reasons why we do things. I can think of uh, uh, Romans 12 that mentions methods of how we beat sin and are transformed. I can think of Acts 1 that talks about the power of the Holy Spirit. So understand this. So it's at least this. Reasons that are by the Spirit, methods that are by the Spirit, and the power of the Spirit. The motives that the Spirit stirs within us, by the way, using many and varied methods. You might wake up one morning and you have a desire to go do something. You don't know where it came from. The spirit has been at work. Or you might have coffee with a Christian friend. And that Christian friend says some things to you that stirs some godly desires. That is also the work of the spirit using his people. In many and varied ways, he is at work. But he stirs motives that glorify God. I want 
to please God. There might be secondary motives also under the umbrella of I want to please God. Okay, secondary kinds of motives, things like I see a fellow Christian who's depressed. I want to encourage him. I want him to have joy. I want him to grow to his good. That's a secondary motive, but it's under the umbrella of I want to glorify God. The Holy Spirit stirs motives for the glory of God. The Holy Spirit uses means, methods, ways that are um, by the Spirit. This is a big point of the Bible. It's a major truth, major biblical principle. So here's one of the top ways that I'll just mention in weeks ahead. We'll talk some more about methods and means, but let me mention this one right now. One of the greatest ways we are transformed in Christ is by worship. It is through worship. It is a major, major point that is shown to us again and again. You become like what you worship. You worship sex, you will be made in its image. You worship the Lord God, you will be transformed to be like him. God uses his word. God uses prayer. God uses all of these spiritual disciplines, the means of grace. All of them are ways that we come and worship God. All of those ways he's given us that we come and engage with him. Every one of them, let me make this point clear. The first and primary reason why we do these things is not this. Worship is always first and primarily about he is worthy of being praised and exalted. That's why we worship first and foremost. But in the grace of God, in the orchestrated plan of God, he has also designed it that as we worship, we are transformed. As we engage with the word of God, you're reading the word on your own. What happens when a Christian mother wakes up on Monday morning and reads her Bible? Big things are happening. She is first and foremost exalting the one who is worthy of all praise. She's also doing some things like she might wake up being like, man, I don't feel real motivated right now to go live for the glory of God. I need some strength. I need some joy. That's a good and godly thing, but that's not all that is happening. God's so big, he can do a hundred things in one thing that he does, in one uh, means of grace that he prescribes. What also happens as we read the word of God, memorize the word of God, as we sing, as we sing, he is transforming us. We are being more, made more and more into the image of Christ. We are being formed and shaped methods that the Holy Spirit uses. By the way, and it can be as simple as, here is a Holy Spirit inspired method, self-control. Galatians 5 says it is a fruit of the Spirit. Kind of like when James says about our tongue, keep your mouth closed, <laughs> bite your tongue, don't say it. That's a Holy Spirit inspired method. So self-control is part of it, but he's, doing, he's using more than that. And then power. Strength supplied by the Spirit. Now this last one, the power of the Holy Spirit to help us. This is one that can be confusing and, and, and sometimes there are Christians that kind of drive themselves a little crazy asking this question. Well, if I'm beating a sin, how do I know if it's by my own power or by the power of the Spirit? They go to do some godly thing go to minister in some way. 
but they're saying, but I don't know if it's by the power of the spirit or by my own power. So, so, so let's, let's say this. We need to know and we need to remind ourselves. We are helpless. We need to regularly cause ourselves to rely on the spirit, lean on him, depend on him, pray and ask and seek and knock and ask God to give us the grace of the Holy Spirit. But a lot of times when we are at work in some spiritual thing, it is indiscernible where my strength ends and where the Holy Spirit is supplying grace. It's often indiscernible. Now, sometimes we can sense it. You ever had one of those moments? I mean, we're interpreting when we get stuff wrong. But have you ever had one of those moments where you're just, you're pretty sure God helped me to do something that I know I couldn't do on my own. Words came out of my mouth that I ain't that smart, okay? Some kind of help was given to me and that's the spirit. There are times where we sense it, but we could be wrong. I've had people sit in my office and tell me the spirit was leading them to do some sin. That's not him. That's not him. He does not lead to the disobeying of the word of God. So sometimes we can sense it, but it is often indiscernible. So we need to know that we need the power of the spirit. Regularly remind ourselves, think thoughts like, if God, if you don't help me, no good is going to happen. And ask him, but know that if we go forward, striving and trying to rely on the Spirit, if good comes, the Spirit has helped. The Spirit has worked. Letter F, lastly, very quickly, put to death your deeds of the body. We're gonna try to spend a great deal of time talking about this part in weeks ahead, but what is probably one of the most important truths that is in this is just simply us knowing God expects us to do this. God expects us to die to sin. And so there needs to be formed a resolution in our hearts, a resolution in our hearts where we commit ourselves to this work. We have to know it's not okay to live in disobedience to God. That is one of those false religions, false teachings that's out there. The idea that, yeah, it'd be better if you did, but it's okay if you don't. That is not the gospel. It is not okay to live in deliberate disobedience to God. Make war against every part of our hearts, every part of our actions, every word, every thought we're even told that is in rebellion to him, we are striving to bring every bit of it in submission to Christ. One of the most important truths in all of this is for us to know God expects us to do it, so let's resolve in our hearts that we're going to give our lives to it. This is one of the greatest ways you will glorify God. It is one of the biggest and weightiest of ways you will bear fruit for your life to count, for your life to be an offering unto him that he's pleased with. Put our sin to death. Make plans to do it. Get active. Let's engage in the work. And in weeks ahead, we'll try to get practical and think through ways to go about it. And if you're hearing me and you have not yet turned to Christ to be saved, 
then you do need to understand, and I just want to make crystal clear before we leave here, the instruction that you need to hear is not make a decision, make a resolve in your heart. All right, I'm going to do better. I'm going to start getting more religious. I'm going to start going to church more. That is not what you need. What you need right now is turn your heart to Christ. Come to God believing on Him. Turn to Him. Trust in His sacrifice for sins, resurrection, and call out to God. You turn to Him and God in grace makes you right with Him and then we enter this work. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Be baptized is the first command you're given after turning to Christ. And then God is going to begin to teach you more and more of what it means to look to him. So let me give the invitation. Anyone who wants to pray to be saved, wants to turn to Christ, find me before you leave. And let's talk before you head out. Let's pray. God of glory, we rejoice in who you are and for what you have done and this great mercy you've given us in giving us your spirit. Lord, I pray that you will work in us. So God, I just pray for every soul, every soul that's, that's here, that's a part of our church family, all of us, oh God, come to us, Lord. And I pray that you will work so that we increase the amount of battling of sin that we do in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would increase the amount of desire that we have to obey you and grow in holiness. So Father, please be at work. Make us holy like Jesus is holy. Make us loving. Make us kind. Cause us to obey the commands we're missing right now. Work in us, oh God, we pray. And Lord, any souls that are Hearing, hearing this, oh God, and have not yet turned, please, Lord, work on them and awaken them. Father, we pray all these things through Christ. Amen. The Lord bless you. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.